1: Grab a seat. We are in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We've been working our way through the life of Jesus as Luke shares it. We started way back in Advent. Uh, we picked it up continuing again in this new year. And one of the continual themes that we see over and over, at least that I see, I hope you're seeing it. Uh, if, if you're not, I'm not doing a very good job communicating it. But uh, he comes to people that we do not expect. He uses situations and events in ways that we would not expect him to use them. And he welcomes the outcasts and challenges the religious insiders. We've seen that over and over as we've walked through Jesus' interactions in this Gospel of Luke. We've also seen that Luke, like the other Gospel writers, selects and organizes the material that he's telling in order to emphasize certain points, certain ideas. Last week we looked at how laying the choosing of the twelve disciples right beside this Sermon on the Plain, this teaching section, how those two together really pointed to this idea of a new Israel that Jesus was starting with, with 12 new tribes and, and a new quote-unquote law, a new ethic, a new way of living. And, and we, we talked last night how he, Jesus is inviting us to follow him into this kingdom, into to living according to the values of the kingdom. Well, in a similar matter today, two stories just happening just over a week, eight days apart, are being told together. And when you hold them up together and look at them both, some deeper ideas begin to emerge. Now we've skipped from chapter 6 all the way over to chapter 9. There's a lot of stories in there. I hope you're reading along, as Jake said, with the lectionary. It's good to kind of, you should be a little ahead of me if you're reading with the lectionary, but you're, you're getting it all Um, lots of miracle and healing stories, things that Jesus is doing, lots of of teaching, teaching that provoked, again, conflict with the religious leaders. And in chapter 9, at the beginning, we see Jesus sending out the 12 disciples on their first kind of mini-mission. You guys go out and preach the gospel, and they went out through the surrounding towns. When they came back together, you may remember Jesus said, let's go away and kind of rest and and debrief this. Well, thousands of other people came along, right? And that's when the feeding of the 5,000 happened. And then after that, Luke jumps to the text we're at today. A, 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 an intimate conversation that happens between Jesus and the twelve that picks up in Luke 9:18. I'm going to ask Carrie if she'll come up and read verses 18 to 36 for us. Luke 9.
0: Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that uh, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God? Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a person who gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits their very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in the glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let, let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know really what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, They found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen.
1: Thanks, Carrie. Once again, two stories, according to the text, happening eight days apart. Uh, But the events that happen really feed off each other. If If you can hold them both in your mind and realize that they're put together here for a reason... Uh, you're going you're to see some things. Both are pretty well known. The first highlight's a moment when we see Peter in his typical bold fashion making a declaration of the truth, right? Peter's just laying it out there. This is a familiar story. He steps up to the plate. He has the right answer. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah of God. And the story builds quickly to that, but I want you to realize that what Jesus is doing first with his disciples is asking them Uh, to start reading the reality around them, right? He's praying in private, but the disciples are there. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And he says to them, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the buzz? Now, this was not something that they were ignorant of. They were very aware of what the crowds were saying. Most of us are concerned about what people think about us. In fact, I have a theory that even those people that say, I don't care what people think about me, the reason they say that is they want people to think that they're the kind of person that doesn't care what people think about them, right? I always think there's, a, there's an irony in that. But we all are concerned about what people think about us. And because the disciples' identity was so tied to Jesus, they were very aware of what the, the buzz was in the community, what people said. And they don't hesitate to respond. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets come back to life. And then Jesus hones in, makes it personal like he always does, but what about you? What do you say? And Peter steps up with that bold claim. You are the Christ of God, that very Greek word for the Messiah. You're the one, the one we've been waiting for, the one all Israel has been waiting for. That's you. Peter knows the correct answer. He gets it right, and not only does he get it right, he has the boldness to step up and say it when none of the other disciples are willing to step up. But Jesus knows something the disciples don't. He knows what it means to be the Messiah. He knows the implications of that. They think they know what it means to be the Messiah. They've, they've had an idea in their head of the Messiah their whole life. But in these next seven verses, he launches into some teaching and explaining that will challenge them to see that when they call him the Messiah, that he wants to know, is it, is it just correct terminology or is it an internalized truth? Is it the right answer or is it something that you really know down deep in your gut? And in order to help them move from their idea of the Messiah they have in their head with all the baggage that comes along with it, uh, down to something that in their heart which begins to impact their lives, he drops these kind of truth bombs, if you want to call them, several of them back to back. I can imagine, at the very least, these things were unsettling if they were hearing them. He starts, it says, by strictly warning. The Greek there means to rebuke and command. A rebuking command or a commanding rebuke, however you want to put it together. He strictly warns them, don't tell anybody else. (laughs) That seems weird. Doesn't that seem weird? Hey, you won the lottery. Don't tell anybody. Hey, your cancer is cured. Don't say a word. Don't let anybody know. Doesn't it seem weird? They've confessed the greatest truth. He is the Messiah, and he tells them to hold it back. But there's a few things even after that warning that would be unsettling, a few things that would would shake him a little bit, things that the first seems like a paradox. He tells him in the context of what's going to happen to him that death is on the road to life. Verse 22, just look at it. The son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There's 35 words in that verse, and the first 26 of them contradict every single thing that they would have thought about the Messiah. First, he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Rejected by who? The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the very people that they would have thought would have been able to pick the Messiah out of a crowd. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he's going to be killed. None of that resonated with their mental picture of the Messiah. But the point comes in these last nine words, and then on the third day, be raised to life. He's heading to life, but death is on the road. It's an entirely new way of thinking for them, a, a, a paradigm shift. How can suffering, rejection, and death be on the road to the life of the Messiah. Before they can even come to terms with this, he begins to to drop another piece of truth on them uh, that that strikes really close to home. He says a follower is always following. A follower always follows. You guys are my followers, right? And I'm going to go through death on the road to life, and a follower always follows. This, This is where I'm going. If anyone wants to follow, here we go. This is the path. I'm going this way. I'm going through this suffering and this rejection and this death. And and you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Are you still in it, guys? Are you still with me? Like, I know it's fun to stand in this upper room and say, you're the Christ. Yes. But do you see what's coming? Do you see where we're going? Sounds like suicide, doesn't it? it? Sounds like not the wisest way to go. And it would be if we didn't remember back to last week's text and that Sermon on the Plain and and remembering kingdom values. That's what he goes into next. This is why life can come out of death. This is why following Jesus through suffering, rejection, and death is wisdom and not foolishness. Remember we talked last week about how the kingdom of God completely works opposite. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the well-fed. And so Jesus says, you know, whoever tries to keep their life loses it. Whoever lets it go gets it. It's that kingdom upside down kind of values. When I was a kid, I read a book called Where the Red Fern Grows. Really sad book about a boy who gets two. Now, my last name is Coon, and I can't say raccoon because I grew up in the South. Two coon hunters, right? He wanted these two coon hunting dogs. And when he got the dogs, finally, he had to train them to to, to track the raccoon in the woods. But how do you train a dog if you don't have a pelt of a raccoon? So he has to find a way to trap a raccoon a coon, and get the pelt to train the dogs. So he shares this method that's used, and it is used in the South. Maybe it's used all over the world. I have no idea. There's a picture of it. You build a little box. Did you get that picture? Yeah. And in that box, you cut a hole just big enough for a raccoon to put his paw in. And you put, Now, I know the SPCA is going to be after me for this one. I'm just telling you the facts, right? I'm not, I'm not condoning this. No raccoons were harmed in the making of this sermon, I promise. But the, 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 the nails then point inward, and then what you do is you cut up some pieces of foil, some shiny things, which raccoons love, and you put them in that box, and the raccoon sticks his hand in and grabs them. And after he's made the fist, guess what? He can't get his hand out. And the raccoons love those shiny things so much that a hunter will walk up to them and beat them to death, club them, without letting go. And see, sometimes, you know what? Sometimes we're, we're like a raccoon. We we'll want to hold on to our life, even if it'll kill us. And Instead of letting it go and actually being free. And that's what Jesus is saying. The reality is that kingdom values rest in the fact that God will give you what you need. You do not have to hold on. You don't have to grasp. He's in control, so you don't have to be. And then Jesus ends this section with these cryptic words in verse 27. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Google that verse and you will find... Pages and pages, reading commentaries of everybody trying to interpret what does that mean? Some of these disciples won't die before the kingdom of God comes. Aren't we still waiting for the kingdom of God? There's lots of argument over it. But I think Luke presents the next story to answer that very question. Because what happens in the next story is Peter, James, and John seeing the kingdom of God. When this conversation happened, none of them would have thought that within just a little over a week, they would see what they saw on that mountain of transfiguration. The kingdom. Jesus in a glorified state, speaking with Moses and Elijah. It's a fantastic moment. It's one we need to to slow down a bit. So I just want to play it out really slow, because sometimes we read these familiar stories fast. But I want you to watch carefully as the scene unfolds, just kind of verse by verse. Just over a week later, eight days later, Peter, James, and John, they go to a mountain. We don't know which one. To pray, and while Jesus was praying, it says apparently in verse thirty-two that the disciples, Jesus praying had a lot of had, had kind of that preaching effect. It puts people to sleep because that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane too, right? They get very sleepy. And while he was praying, at that same moment, while they're getting sleepy, something miraculous happens. He 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 transforms. His whole appearance changes. His face transforms. His clothes became as bright as a flash. Of lightning. Just think about that. If you saw lightning close up, how bright. And then, this is the weird one Moses and Elijah appear, also in glorious splendor. And they spoke about his departure, right? His death, which he's just told the disciples about, but that's what they're talking about. And it says, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. What's a hard truth for the disciples? I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, die, is a normal topic of conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And then then the disciples finally start waking up to what's happening, right? And and as they woke up, they see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Somehow they recognize them, I don't know, probably not a little, hello, my name is Moses, or hello, my name is, I don't know how, but they knew exactly who it was. And then they start to leave. Peter blurts out, wait a second, this is good for us to be here. Let's build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And as he's speaking, right, while he's having this great idea, which the text of Luke always says he didn't know what he's talking about, as he's speaking, this cloud envelops the mountain. Now, you remember the cloud coming in the Old Testament was the presence of God, right? It was just there. It would descend on the holy of holies in the temple. And in this cloud, there's a voice, this is my son whom I have chosen Listen to him. The Greek for listen to him, it means shut up. I'm just kidding. It doesn't. But, but it, it means be quiet, Peter. Listen. What a moment. I mean, I, I think about when we meet famous people. Have you ever met a famous person? Raise your hand if you've met a famous, who you would, yeah. And it's exciting, right? Like I, I met Billy Graham once at church. I sat and talked to him after church. It was kind of fun. I, I played basketball with Michael W. Smith. You remember Michael W. Smith? Yeah, I played basketball with him. And you know what he says? Friends are friends forever, right? So, so Michael W. Smith and I, we're close, right? Uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, and yeah, you don't even know who this guy is, but when I was a kid in high school, I was bagging groceries, and I looked up, and the guy buying groceries was a guy named Bob Greasy. Now, some of you Americans might know he was a famous quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, and there he was walking through my, I was bagging his groceries. He tipped me a dollar, and you know what I did? I gave him the dollar back and asked for his autograph on it. It was just a moment. I mean, a high school kid playing football seeing this NFL quarterback. And of course, the top of the, the cream of the crop for you Canadians, I met Paul Henderson. Paul Henderson, the guy who scored the winning goal in the last three games of the Summit Series in 1972. Right? That wasn't as big a deal to me then as it is now because I wasn't quite as Canadian then as I am now. But I realize now that was um, Canadian standards. Paul Henderson's a big deal. And, and this isn't any of those. This is Jesus in his glory. I said Jesus like a southern preacher there. This is Jesus in his glory and Moses and Elijah. And there's no wonder Peter said it's good for us. I can't believe this. There's two things we see happening on the side of this mountain. One is this, a clear validation of the truth. Peter's just said it a few few verses earlier, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ of God. Well, this is the validation of that. Here it is in living color, in 3D. Not only do we see Jesus glorified, fully transfigured, divine, we see Moses and Elijah, representatives of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about exactly what Jesus had been talking about in verse 22, about his suffering, his rejection, and his death. And as if they needed more, a cloud, think of the Old Testament images again, the glory of God and the voice, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. It's a clear validation of the truth. The statement that Peter said, the statement that Peter didn't really understand, here it is, and you cannot miss it. But they do. They do miss it because the other thing you see happening here is the disciples seriously missing the point. And I say disciples, but I'm blaming most of it on Peter, right? First of all, they're sleepy. They're on, on the mountainside with Jesus in this text. They're praying and they're, they're sleepy. That, that's a common, as I said, in Garden of Gethsemane, we saw it. Actually, we even see it in Daniel 10. When Daniel has this vision of God in verse 9, it says he was overwhelmed by the experience. And he was exhausted. It says, then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. That's what Daniel said. And only Luke tells us this story that that the disciples were asleep. Mark, Matthew, Peter. Peter tells it in 2 Peter. Three other tellings of the transfiguration. Nobody talks about the sleepiness of the disciples, but Luke does. And, you know, when they they wake up and they see this, maybe you ever had that point where you're half asleep, half awake, and you wake up and you don't know if you're dreaming or it's, maybe that's what they, because this was pretty fantastic what they saw. But when they finally realize it, Peter speaks up. The text says he didn't know what he was saying. But he says, let's build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus, because it's good for us to be here. We need to stay here. Now, most likely he was thinking to the festival of, Tabernacles, where they would build these little shelters. That was a festival that celebrated the coming of the kingdom. But the reality is, for, in some measure, he wanted this moment to continue. The, Moses and Elijah were leaving, and he's like, this can't happen. Let's build three shelters. Let's keep you guys here to stay where you were. This moment of glory, he said, doesn't need to end. This despite the fact that a week earlier, Jesus said, okay, here's what's next. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and I'm going to die. Despite the fact that Moses and Elijah were there talking about that very plan, Peter in that moment says, I don't want it to end. He preferred this moment of glory to that task that Jesus was laying out ahead of him, suffering, rejection, death. But that was not to be because the cloud shows up halfway through Peter's. We don't know if Peter finished his statement cloud shows up and the voice says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. You see, we're like that too. We want the glory and the good. We want that warm fuzzy, that feeling that yes, God's here. Jesus is here. Moses and Elijah. Let's just stay right here. Isn't this what it's meant? Isn't this what we're meant for? This is what following God is all about, this knowing, this experience of overwhelming glory. We want the good times, the glorious times. We want the times of wonder and amazement, and sometimes it's a struggle when Jesus pushes us beyond that. It's interesting, you know what it says at the end of the text? When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus... Was alone. I, I think Luke has given us that wake up kind of detail as, as, as a metaphor. I also think Luke clarifies that Jesus was alone in another metaphoric way to say it, it's, this is it. The way Jesus is going is not going to progress through this glory of Moses and Elijah and power and brilliance, it's going to be suffering and rejection and death. It's a struggle when Jesus pushes us beyond those glorious moments to to hard times. Sometimes it's hard being awakened to the truth. I love verse 32. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. When they finally could see, they saw his glory. And Jesus, I think, brought them through this experience to to show them the glory of his messiahship, but also the way that it was going to play out. Not just Messiah as answer to a question, who do you say that I am, but Messiah as it actually looks like in flesh and blood. He wants them to know him, the truth, fully, and to let that knowing become the driving force of all that they do. He wants us to see past our own ideas of what Jesus can do for us, right? Because we all anybody have ideas of what Jesus could do for you? I've got a whole list of what Jesus could do for me. But lots of times Jesus pushes me past that list and says, let's think a little bigger here. Let's see what I'm up to in the world. He wants them to see the truth. Remember that story on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? These two disciples are downhearted, downcast, because Jesus has been crucified. He's been in the tomb, and they're walking home. They're giving up on this thing. And, and this man that they don't recognize who is Jesus is walking beside them, and he, he begins to engage with them and ask them questions, and then he starts going through the whole Old Testament teaching them everything that was there that was written about him. I would love to have been on that walk to hear that. And then he goes in at the end, and it says in Luke 24, 30 to 32, he took, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scriptures to us. See, there are some realities about the truth of of Jesus that lay in these two back-to-back stories. Who do you say that I am? Take up your cross and follow me, this whole story and this transfiguration. Together, they clarify something for us. They clarify some things about the truth and what it looks like. Some, some things about the truth as as it comes, as we internalize it, as we begin to know the truth, not as a fact or an answer to a question, but as a, as a relationship with God. First is this, truth often brings fear and loss. Our assumptions are that when we encounter the truth, finally, it's all sunshine and rainbows. All I want to know is the truth. But lots of times the truth brings about fear and loss. The, the challenge is like... We don't search for the truth empty-handed. We search for the truth with, with ideas of what the truth is already in our hands. And we often have something that we think is the truth. They had a concept of Messiah in their hands. They knew what Messiah was. But for them to find out who he really was, they had to let go of that and make space. What would it look like? And, and to these preconceived ideas, Jesus was saying to them, death is on the road to life. You guys are jumping to life, and it's coming. But you've got to realize death is on that road. Truth often starts with loss, and it's painful. It can be scary. You and Matthew's telling of this story, Fear plays a big role. It says in Matthew 17, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. When you're beginning to see the truth as it really is often, you feel fear and loss. And and, and our feeling is, <laughs> we're, we're doing something wrong. I don't feel confident here, but but. It, that's part of the process. It's part of this letting go of the old to make space for the new. That may be the death that is on the way to life. One of the biggest spiritual truths I've ever learned is that loss makes space. <laughs> I've been through some times in my life where my loving uh, understanding of who I was, my, my great respect I had for myself was damaged by my own actions. You ever been there? You ever let yourself down? And It hurts. I was not the person I thought I was in that situation. That has to happen. That pain is the letting go of who I think I am so that God can teach me who I really am. We have to to learn to cultivate that loose grip, to, to be the raccoon caught in the trap and be willing to let go of what we wanted, what we thought we wanted, to be set free. And to realize that even though we may love what we've got in our hands, even though we may love our ideas and our perceptions and how we think the truth is going to play out, we may have to let that go for the truth to actually come. Paul writes in Philippians, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake i've lost all things i consider them rubbish that i may gain christ i've got to let these things go paul says i'm considering them lost who cares about these things because guess what i get out of this i get christ and that's way bigger but there's a loss and a fear that comes in that and 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 i I just want to encourage you when you feel that i'm afraid i don't know what's happening my, my life seems out of control And you think, where are you, God? That may be exactly what's happening. He may be prying the truth that you're holding to out of your hand so that there's space for the real truth to come in and feel that. So how do I get it, Jeff? How do I I move from that place of fear and loss? Well, in our text, we see truth is encountered in prayer. If you're reading along through Luke with the lectionary, you've noticed that prayer is very central in Luke's telling of the Jesus story. There's, There's lots of of images of the importance of prayer in Luke. There's a little diagram we'll put up there. starts in Luke chapter 1, 5 to 20. is going to the temple to pray, right? And that's where the angel shows up and says, you're going to have a son. In chapter 3, 21 and 22, Jesus prays at his baptism. It actually says when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. And you, I am well pleased. That's 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 as he was. How is he praying and being baptized at the same time? Didn't he get water in his mouth? I I want you to realize that when the scripture talks about prayer, yes, it is talking to God, but it's 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 being in the presence of God. It's it's being quiet enough to know you are with Him. There's a communion that happens even when you're not saying anything out loud. That is prayer, as long as you're acknowledging you're in the presence of God. Remember. He was at Peter's house doing all that healing, and and he got up in the middle of the night. In chapter 4, verse 42, Jesus prays before leaving Capernaum, right? And he gets out early in the morning, and they come, and they say, you've got to come back. Everybody's wanting you. And he's like, no, no, we've got other places to go. Before selecting the 12 disciples last week, we saw that he spent the night in prayer. And, And today, before Peter's confession, it says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. Doesn't that seem weird? How do you pray in private with your disciples with you? Well, it's because he, it's not prayer meeting like we have where we're giving, going through our list of, of shopping. He, he's being with God, even in the midst of the disciples being there. And that's why I say truth is encountered in prayer, not learned as a fact in prayer. And then also in our text today, he prays before the transfiguration. He's praying when this happens. See, the truth is encountered in prayer. You may not even know the truth that you get in prayer. There are things we learn that we don't know that we know. It's interesting. I've, um, I've got a basketball player, and, and I'm, I'm working with her on my team, and I'm working with her, but she's a very talented player and very athletic, and yet as she drives to the hoop, even if she's open, she stops instead of just going up to shoot. And lots of times, by the time she stops, somebody covers her, and she loses the shot. So we were talking about this, and she's like, I don't, I don't know. And we've talked, we've tr- done some drills where we have the whole team. This is, yeah, SPCA, might, or other, other anim- but I, I push them with a hockey pad as they come in and shoot just to make them have contact, right? And, and you can see her. As she comes in, she kind of bends away from it. And, and as we were driving home from the game the other night, five players in my in my van. She says, you know, I've done it ever since I got hurt. Two years ago, we were playing. She drove to the basket. She hurt, tore, tore something in her ankle and missed a whole season. And I realized she, her body is protecting herself. She doesn't realize she's doing it. She knows something that she doesn't even know, that I'm scared to be here. And, and sometimes we learn the truth that way in prayer. We may not be able to verbalize, oh, I learned this, I learned that. But for, in some way, God comes and meets us and it changes us. There's Psalm 73 where the psalmist writes about, he, he, he starts by saying, surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. And he goes on to talk about how he looks out and all the, the, the evil people are prospering and all the righteous people are suffering. And he's like, how can this be? I can't believe this. I'm so frustrated. And then in verse 16 to 17, it says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. There's something about being in God's presence that teaches us the truth at an internalized level. It comes through the presence of God. And I can tell you, if you're not slowing down at parts of your day just to take time to be in the presence of God, I, I tell you why we avoid it sometimes, because when we get there, all of a sudden we feel these things in our hands slipping away, and we're scared has to be this point of trust. Truth truth involves some fear and loss, and it's encountered in prayer, but truth starts with listening. Verse 35, listen to him. Don't build a shelter, Peter, to keep him here. That's not the plan. Don't work to contain Jesus. Listen to him. That's what we try to do every week, to to let go of the things we think Jesus said and hear what he actually said. Love your enemy. (laughs) Love your enemy. To let that really sink in. Be good to those who hurt you. Be generous. Be merciful, even as the Father is merciful. There's a a verse in John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The, The Greek form, I don't like that English translation, hold to my teaching, because it sounds like you write down, take notes, and you hold it in your hands. You hold it. You have it. The Greek actually is... If you abide in my word, if you meno, which is abide, in my logos, my word, if you live with me, if you're in relationship with me, if you stay with me, then you'll, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, prayer starts with presence, and it ends with listening. How can we know when we've let go? How can we know when we're actually getting the truth of the Messiah the way Jesus wants to get it? Well, truth reflects kingdom values. Always. The truth will bear fruit in line with kingdom values, the upside-down logic of God. Look back at verse 22 to 26. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. How can that be the truth? Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See... These upside-down values of the kingdom, if you've got the truth, if your life is living out of the truth, you're going to start to demonstrate those values. Mercy, love, graciousness, forgiveness, willingness to lose, willingness to sacrifice. Those are the kingdom values. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. How do I know if I've got the truth the way it's supposed to be? Your life begins to reflect those kingdom values. And if it's not... If you're angry all the time, if 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 you're constantly cutting other people down and trying to build yourself up, if you're doing things that you're not proud of because you're trying to control the situation, then then you don't have the truth internalized. You're not living out those kingdom values. So where do you you've got to go back to being in the presence and let letting God pry those things away from you. Be with Him and listen to what He says. In John 14 to 16, Jesus spends a lot of time prepping the disciples for what's coming as he heads to the cross. And one of the things he says is, I'll go away, but the comforter will come, the Spirit. And he says, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. This is not something that's beyond us. The Spirit is here helping us get there. And at times it will be a scary process. At times we'll feel like we're losing stuff. At times we'll feel like the solid ground we thought we were standing on is shaking underneath our feet. But that's okay, it's a part of the process. Death is on the way to life. But if you'll quiet yourself in the presence of God, if you'll just rest in the fact that he is the one driving the bus, he's the one running the show, it's his kingdom. And if you'll listen to what he says to you in those moments, your life will come to be this, this tree that bears the fruit of the kingdom. And you can know that by the fruit that comes from it. And the fruit that will nourish, it not only nourish you, it will nourish those around you. It will bring transformation into the lives of the people who encounter you because you're bearing that fruit by the power of the Spirit as the Spirit leads you into truth. And that's the calling we have as disciples until Jesus returns to surrender to his leadership, take up our cross, follow him, to let go of our lives, to actually receive what he's got for us. That's the calling. Let's pray. God, sometimes I think I'd like to have seen what happened on that mountain, and other times I think I would have been too chicken. But we do want to see you really for who you are. Even if it's just in this growing understanding of the truth of your love and grace for us that transforms us, that changes us. And God, as we're all here together, I'm sure there are people here that feel like their life has fallen apart, They feel like the ground is shaking underneath them. And they're terrified. And God, I I pray that in those moments you will come to them, that you will enable them to quiet themselves and to rest and to listen to what you have to say, to receive the truth that you have to give, to realize that even in this death that they are experiencing, that it's on the road to life, that you will lead us all to life, that that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you've come to give life abundant life life. Help us to open our hands and follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. The longer I'm a Christian, the longer I pastor, the more I'm convinced, and you can disagree with this or not, but the thing that underpins all our reluctance to surrender to Jesus is fear. And and, Some people say pride because we won't admit we need, but I think we're afraid that if we are known for who we really are, if our sins get out there, if we're honest about what's going on in our heart and our life and our actions, that something bad's going to happen. But the point of it all is our sins are many, but his mercy is more. You don't have to be afraid to be exposed. You don't have to be afraid to, to acknowledge that what you're holding to isn't holding you up. You can let go and trust. That's my prayer for you this week, that you begin to walk in a freedom that comes from knowing that God loves you at your point of deepest need. Amen.